Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message was given by Larry Vold. All right, find your sermon outline there in your bulletin. Let's open our Bibles today to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. You'll find that on page 1671 in that book rack Bible. Everybody's Bible open, 1671 in that book rack Bible. So today we come to our last Sunday in Lent. Now we have a few more days to go and we hope that you've been enjoying the Lenten readings on our website every day. You've been tracking along with those, hopefully. Hope that you've been praying for people and inserting prayers in the little prayer wall that we have out there and praises. Man, that thing's getting crowded out there. I love seeing that. Take a few on your way out today and pray for some people in our midst. We've been wanting to raise the level of prayer, raise the level of scripture throughout this entire Lenten season. We've been asking God what needs to change in our hearts. And we've been looking at the issue of giving up some things over the period of Lent. We've talked about giving up a food craving, a media obsession, a simple pleasure, giving up selfishness, giving up hard-heartedness. Today we want to talk about giving up the crowd. What does it mean to give up the crowd? Well, let me back up and say that instead of just giving up a few things over the period of Lent, we've also said that it would be better if we would just go after some things for a lifetime. Giving up some things for a few days during Lent is okay, but it's great if those are trigger mechanisms that help us to go after some better things for a lifetime. For example, going after fasting with prayer. Or going after silence, solitude, and time in scripture reading. Or going after a life of humility. Or going after a life of kindness and generosity. Or going after a life that forgives and seeks the forgiveness of others. Those are some things worth going after for a lifetime, wouldn't you agree? And that's what what we've been talking about over these last five weeks. Today we come to this last little message, this last little focus of Lent where we're going to talk about giving up the crowd. And what we're going after for a lifetime is the life that Christ has for us. We're giving up the crowd to go after the life that Christ has for us. Now if you follow the liturgical calendar, a church calendar, you know that today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that the church commemorates when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the week before his crucifixion. It was the Holy Week, Passion Week. It was the the week that the church recognizes that this was Jesus' mission. This is what he came to do. And what we're about to see in our text today, which I hope you will see as well, is the contrast between the crowd and its expectation of Christ and Christ and his obligation of what he came to do. And we're going to try to look at those as sort of a contrasting tension this morning, the crowd and its expectation of Christ, and the Christ and his expectation or obligation for why he came. We're looking at this all today from John chapter 12, and if you have your Bibles open to that, now it's time to focus in and follow as I read verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the, for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, 
Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to the worship to worship at the feast. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And we'll glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Wow. It's interesting as I look at this text, and I don't know about you, but a lot of things come to my mind. It might be, for some of us, a little bit of a stretch to think about the issue of giving up the crowd, but what I want to show you immediately in this text is that the purpose of this setting was that Jesus was entering Jerusalem just one week before Passover. In fact, the text tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12 that it was literally six days. And then verse 12 says it was the next day. So we know we're just five days out from Passover. We are very nearing the time where Jesus is going to go to the cross. He is yet to experience the betrayal. He is yet to experience the mock trial, the scourgings. All of this was coming in just the few days that followed this narrative that we are in. And the crowd is here. And I don't know if you've ever been in a big crowd. Think right now with me just what it's like to be in a crowd that is sort of worked up. Maybe you've been in a crowd 
somewhat like that at some point in your life. A crowd that suddenly hears something, suddenly knows something, suddenly is moving in a direction. I remember uh, one little humorous story. We were at Disneyland with our kids when they were little, and suddenly it was known that Michael Jackson was in the park, and this crowd began to gather, and suddenly we were swept into it, and suddenly this entourage comes by, and there I saw just a glimpse of Michael Jackson and a few people as they went by, and the crowd just got bigger and bigger, and we just got swept into the whole thing. It's just a weird experience. There's just all these people. I was traveling in India and I was uh, in Bombay and there was some special person, I don't even know who it was, I was with my friend David Hunt, we were there serving on a mission and we'd just taken a little walk one day and there were millions of people around it seemed to me, but suddenly there was this dignitary, someone that had a lot of clout in the area and a crowd began to form and once again we were just sort of sucked into this crowd. It was just an amazing experience. Well, the crowd that gathered around Jesus that day were the Galilean Jews who had seen many of Jesus' miracles, and they were looking for him to come, hopefully to Passover. Every Jewish male and his family were commanded or obligated to go up to Jerusalem during three feasts of the calendar year. There were seven feasts in Israel. Three of them you were required to make pilgrimage to Israel. One was Passover, the next one was Pentecost, and the third one was Tabernacles, commemorating the wilderness wanderings. Three different feast times where the people would come up to Jerusalem. And here, knowing that Jesus might likely be among them, the Galilean Jews, the Jews that had seen Jesus do the miraculous works, the Jews that had witnessed him uh, uh, heal the blind man and, and raise people up who were sick and, and touch the throngs of people and feed the 5,000 and all these amazing, miraculous events were here waiting in procession. They were hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus who in their minds had star status. The crowds were swelling in hopes of getting a glimpse of Jesus as well as Lazarus, this dead guy who was now alive and they wanted to see both Jesus and Lazarus and so here they were just outside of Jerusalem in the town of Bethany just on the other side of the Kidron Valley as you go out to the east of Jerusalem you run into this little town called Bethany and here Jesus is gathering and coming with his disciples. Let me just break this down into some simple things that we might observe this morning. In verses 12 through 22, can I suggest to you that the crowd has an expectation? Just write that down. The crowd has an expectation. All crowds have expectations. All crowds have gathered to see something, experience something, do something. I've observed that whether one lives in the first century or the 21st century, certain expectations drive people within a crowd. And certain expectations drive people to see Jesus. I mean, think about it. It's pretty easy to tell that when a crowd is formed quickly, there are things that communicate that we have an expectation. Let me just walk down through the text and just give you a couple of of simple things that might anchor where we're going in the message. First of all, this expectation of the crowd is communicated through showing up. This crowd shows up. It communicates an expectation. Look at verse 13. They went out to meet him. Verse 18, they went out to meet him. Verses 20 and 21, these... uh, Greeks that come uh, and they're coming up to worship too. They say, we would like to see Jesus. 
There's an expectation to see Jesus. But let me pull this into the contemporary uh, truth that right here today, here's a crowd of us. We're all here. There's a crowd here today. Have you noticed that? You're going to notice that when you go out to the parking lot this morning, when you leave. There's a crowd. There's a crowd that is gathered, and all of us have certain expectations. One of the things that happens when a crowd shows up is that there is an expectation. What's going to happen here? Are we going to see Jesus? Are we going to experience Jesus? Can my burden that I'm carrying this morning be lifted? What about this problem I'm facing? And we come oftentimes with these expectations, and we show that we have an expectation when we show up. The second thing that communicates expectation is speaking up. I see this in verse 13 where the people shout. In verse 21, they say there are words that are spoken. It isn't difficult to see who they think Jesus is. They say, Hosanna, which is the word that means Lord save. They're quoting from the, one of the great Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 118, and you see them in the Psalms where Psalm after Psalm is sort of a, a, a choir, a, a beautiful expression of the Lord coming, the beautiful reminder that, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is all a, a forecast, it's a picture of the one who is going to come and redeem and set Israel free to be to set up his kingdom and to see things finally take place as they are awaiting. In fact, what's not found in Psalm 118 is this continued expression, blessed is the king of Israel. These folks were showing up, but they were speaking up. They were saying that no question about it, they believed that Jesus was Messiah. But there was also in that crowd that day, verse 19, there were those that were stirring up. Not just showing up, not just speaking up, but there were those stirring up. Do you see that in verse 19? It says there that the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. This is a sigh of lament for the Pharisees. They see, and they look at Jesus coming, and they see the crowd crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they say, look how the whole world has gone after him. Do you see a little bit of jealousy there? The Pharisees are stirring up the people. You know, it's interesting, in any crowd, there are people that are excited, there are people that are anticipating, there are people that have a view and an expectation of Jesus, and then there are some people there that are actually not engaged at all in what many of the people in the crowd are wanting to be. This past week, I I had a a very gracious email from somebody who was last week in our service, and they heard about, we talked about forgiveness, and they had some very astute questions about, well, gee, what about, okay, forgiving forgiving those who have harmed us in the past, but what about people who are right now uh, hurting us? What do we do there? And so I was responding to that person like I often do in email, and and, and uh, sharing some thoughts and ideas about how the amazing grace of God gives us the ability to forgive people in the present as well as people in the past. And the person came back and said, well, you know, that's great. Thank you for that. That's interesting insight. But I just need you to understand something. I'm not a Christ follower and I'm not really interested in being one. And went on to describe some things about their past and d- different background and kind of brought in some, you know, historical criticism of some things. And it was a very, I love being stimulated by some of that. But it was interesting to me as I thought about this person that, it, and, and this is good for all of us to realize. This is a beautiful thing. 
That on any given Sunday when we gather as a crowd, there are some of us who are eagerly expecting God to show up, speak into our lives, transform us, change us. And there are some among us who have no interest whatsoever in Jesus doing anything in their lives. And they're just checking things out. And the beautiful thing about that is, is I, I love the fact that God surprises people, right? So you might have no interest, you may have no desire. I've been praying for this gentleman that had come last week. I hope he's here. I hope he's listening right now. I hope that people come in here with their own set of whatever and they're just maybe just, who knows why a person might show up and yet God may wonderfully surprise, tap at the door of their heart, go into the recess of their life where they realize that they need a savior, they need a personal relationship with God. They've got a flush religion and all the caricature around that and come into a personal relationship with the living God. And God is interested in that. He wants that and he's drawing people to himself. But just just think about it. Just don't take for for a a plain assumption that everybody sitting around you, the people on your right and left are, are just desiring to have God work in their lives. It may not be the case. But your love, your acceptance, your greeting, your care, your taking time for that person might be the trigger mechanism that causes them to hear or see the Lord like they've never seen him before. So we have a great opportunity, and don't ever miss that. In the crowd, there are those that show up, speak up, even stir up. You see, the expectation of the crowd is very simple. If you're taking notes, verses 13 through 15, here's what the expectation of the crowd is. It's time for Jesus to be crowned. It's time for Jesus to take his rightful place. And the Jews were constantly, constantly trying to when they saw a glimpse of Jesus' miraculous power and when they began to believe that this truly was the Messiah, they were constantly trying to push him into a place of, of go, 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 it's time for the kingdom to come, right? I mean, even as far back as John chapter 2, you remember Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus at that wedding of Cana and she says, Jesus, you know, can you do something? We're out of wine here. Remember that? And Jesus, do you remember his response? It's kind of an odd response. Woman, why do you come to me? My time has not yet come. And then he goes about doing a miracle of bringing about wine out of water. So what is that all about? Well, Jesus is obviously saying, you got the right guy. I'm Messiah. I'm going to prove that right now. But my time has not yet come. In John chapter 6, just turn back there a couple pages if you're in John 12. John chapter 6, you remember this. Feeding of the 5,000. And do you remember at the end of that narrative, after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd is going crazy. When they saw the miraculous sign Jesus had done, they began to say, verse 14, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now that just seems counterintuitive. You come to be Messiah, you come to be king over Israel, and you retreat? Why? It's not his time. The time he's talking about, the time the Gospel of John is talking about, is the time that we're talking about today. It's a whole different time. It wasn't time for Jesus to be crowned. We'll get to what time it is. 
But the crowd thinks, this is it. In fact, you remember Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this little foal of a donkey. And Zechariah 9.9, I mean, if you, were, if you had Jewish blood, you knew this prophetic scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, the prophet said. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Could there have been any greater statement as to, as to who Jesus was when he strode into Jerusalem on that Sunday, or actually on the five days prior to a Passover taking place, then this moment, as history reveals, the hour, the hour had arrived to them. They had said, this is it. It's time for the king to show his power and his glory. But let me point out to you, the expectation of this crowd lacks a very important perspective. Verses 16 and 17. I like how John says, go back to John chapter 12. A little parenthetical statement here, verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. So actually what John says as he's composing his gospel is he takes a little parenthetical break here and he says, actually, the people's expectation wasn't really dialed in. They really didn't have the picture that they fully needed. The crowd meant well. They were operating under what they believed. I'm not trying to fault them. I'm just pointing out they knew who Jesus was, but they were wrong and they were really wrong about what he had ultimately come to do. You know, that just strikes me that there's some of us who sit in a crowd who get it right about who Jesus is but get it wrong about what he really wants to do in your life. Think about it. There are people all around us who say, if I, I know Jesus is Lord, I know he's king of glory, I want Jesus to come in, and I want Jesus to do all this stuff for me. It's, it becomes a, Jesus, now you're my magic genie. You're the one to straighten up my life and give me my life back and give me all the material possessions I need, give me the relationships I want, give me happiness in my life. And there are many people actually touting that. There are people not just in the crowd, but people actually speaking to crowds on that very theme. But Jesus does not come to give us a happy life. Jesus comes to give us a new life. He comes to give us life. Because we're dead without him. Spiritually dead, unable to hear, unable to respond. Jesus shows up in our hearts, knocks at the door of our hearts to free us from our captivity of death. So let's hold on to that for just a moment and let's now switch gears from the expectation of the crowd to the obligation of the Christ. Verses 20 through 22, I would suggest here that the Christ has an obligation, if you want to write that down. And it, it's pointed to here in verses 20 through 22 where these Greek God-fearing Gentiles, you know, they were enamored by the teachings of the Jews and they were fearing God and they too were coming up to the Passover and they ask Philip, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Many believe that it is this conversation that John uses to segue into the whole purpose of his coming. Remember in chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus, speaking to the Jews, said that he had other sheep that they did not 
know of that were not of that sheep pen. Do you remember that? And it might have been that when these Gentile God-fearers came, that this was the trigger for Jesus to then speak about his true purpose and why he came. The obligation of Christ is communicated through three things. Can I point them out? Number one, a profound affirmation. Write that down, a profound affirmation. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh, here we are. This is the hour to which Jesus had long awaited. It was here. This is the hour of his glorification. It starts with his passion. It moves to the cross. It goes to the resurrection and ultimately to his glorification. This is what Jesus came for, his humiliation and suffering. And he says it No better could he have said it in verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is affirming and proclaiming that he must die so that others might live. This is strange irony upon which the gospel is set That only through the death of Jesus is spiritual life made possible to any one of us. Some people have thought that the most important thing about Jesus was his teaching. He just came and he taught us the way of God. They completely forsake and miss the perspective and the power and the importance of the cross. And there are many who in the umbrella of Christianity do not embrace the cross of Christ but only embrace the life of Christ. And I would suggest to you that that is an incomplete gospel because unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot produce. Jesus is prophesying that it is through his death that we experience true life. And his time now has come. This was his time. In fact, hold your place in John 12. We'll just quickly go back to Luke chapter 19, please. Luke chapter 19, another perspective of Luke's account when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This is the same day, same period. This is just Luke's perspective. Luke 19, 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. He was prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 A.D., by the Romans. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You know, it's interesting. We live in a culture that is really careless with time. I've noticed that. Have you? People are so careless with time. I, it's just interesting to me. You know, I, I've done weddings where halfway through the wedding, you know, people are coming in. Um, church services, I tease about that, but, you know, we start at a certain time and just throughout the morning, just people kind of come in, you know. Last night, we had our first of six presentations of the cross of uh, love. Amazing, amazing story. You've got to see it. You've got to bring some friends to it. I'm sitting up in the balcony, and one half hour into the program, there are families still streaming in. I think, what happened to their watch? (laughs) It starts at 2.30, and people are showing up at 3. 
walking in midway through the story. I wonder if they sit there and go, what is this all about? You know, it's just like, I don't know. People are just careless with time. I've done funerals where family members come a half hour, 45 minutes late. What is that? There are some of us who treat work that way for a little while. (laughs) Time. Most of us don't even wear wristwatches. We've got them on these things now, right? But there's no excuse for being late. There's no excuse for missing the time of Christ's passion. Jesus came to die. And so many... So many miss it. They still miss it. They have no clue, no idea that this is what's happened. Coming out of a profound affirmation, let me suggest to you the obligation of the Christ also communicated through a personal invitation. A personal invitation. And and what that invitation is, is that death is the new way of life. Look at verses 25 and 26. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This is Christ's invitation to all of us. Come and follow him. Our death leads to true life. Death to self and being made alive to Christ. We die so that Christ's life may be seen in us. And we don't just die when we give Jesus our life. We die daily. We die daily. I'm looking down here at my brother Jim who has fought cancer, has been, God has just worked in his life and just 10 years, right? 10 years of pancreatic cancer and getting through that, all this stuff. And, and last Sunday he's not here. So I'm thinking, where's Jim? Well, he travels sometimes. Get home next day, I find out Monday morning I get a text. I, I'm sorry, I didn't tell, I'm in the hospital. Okay, so he's been in and out of the hospital so much. I mean, he's not, you know, he walks in. Everyone knows his name. I mean, it's just, that's the way it is. So, but he's having a, a tough time. I mean, he was down for the count. Get this, a little, little funny aside. He's in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, Kaiser Walnut Creek. The ambulance is in an accident. <laughs> you know, how would you feel in the back? You know, could we just get there? You know, that would be great. He's patient, it's a 45-minute turnaround, new ambulance comes, packs him into that one, takes him to the hospital. So he's telling me this story, but as I'm there at the hospital last Monday, here's, he's hooked up to IVs, he's got blood transfusion going in, he's got all this stuff, he's on meds, and all he can tell me is all the people he's had the opportunity to share Christ with since he's been there, and what happened last week at the men's dinner, and all the other amazing things that happened around here at the church. And I think, I'm walking out, and I told this, Jim, to so many people that day. I said, you know, I'm walking out of that hospital going, that's the way I need to live my life. Every day is just an adventure of, Lord, I die to myself so that your life might be seen in me. And I'm going to keep dying to myself, keep dying to myself, keep dying to myself, that the life of Jesus might be seen in me. Thank you, Jim, for that witness. And here, here he is today. I mean, God has... And he tells me this morning, yeah, there was a guy in my room, had the privilege of leading him to Christ, prayed with him. Another guy, the guy that brought me food every day, man, just prayed with him, just, 
Just ministry, 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 ministry. Who's, who's walking by us that we go, ah, you know, get out of my way. I'm, I'm trying to get somewhere. It's a great example. Which brings me to the last thing. I've got to wrap this up. A profound affirmation, a personal invitation, and a passionate realization. You know what Jesus says, verses 27 through 32. Observe the tension he feels in his humanity. Jesus says, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? You see the humanity of Jesus coming out here? His heart is troubled. How would your heart be if you know, knew that within few, a few days you were going to be stripped, you were going to be flogged, you were going to be marched through the city of Jerusalem, practically naked, taking the cross up to a mount called Calvary and displaying there your greatest purpose and mission to die for the sins of the world. Would your heart be troubled? And yet, what does Jesus say? Father, should I say, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very hour, this reason I came. It is for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I've just thought in my own heart how wonderful it would be that if I could take the tension moments of my life, the things that I don't like what's happening, the issues where I know that I am dying and needing to die to myself, and I would say, Father, would you like to just remove this from my life? No, instead, be glorified in this moment. Wouldn't that be a better prayer to pray? Lord, let you be seen in how I respond to this disappointment, this letdown, this heartache, this loss, this desperate situation in my life. And what happens as a result of that? Amazing things happen. God responds back, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd didn't know if it was thunder or what, but Jesus said this was so you would know that what God is doing is a beautiful and powerful thing. You see, when the crowd thought it was time for Jesus to be crowned, Jesus' obligation knew that it was time for him to be, what? Crucified. The hour had arrived. And that's really where we stop today. What is in front of Jesus is the scourging, the mock trials, the false witnesses, the humiliation, the suffering, and the death. And all of that happens in this week of remembrance. And next week, a different story. Next week, the glorious resurrection. But don't, don't miss the passion of Christ. His obligation to be crucified. His death for our life. This morning, has the Lord surprised you? Has the Lord tapped at your heart? Has the Lord encouraged you to see your circumstance as a platform, as a medium to leverage the gospel of Jesus in your relationships? Let's go to the Lord right now. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your given life. Thank you, Lord, that we are recipients and that you invite all of us into a relationship with you. Now, some of us, Lord, are going to say, no, 
Some of us are rebellious and, and stubborn. And we're going to say no. But Lord, I pray that if it's no today, that by your grace and mercy, you would so love them and so bring circumstances into their lives to show them that yours is the only way and that you are the only way to life, life as you desired. So Lord, this is a a huge week that we enter into. I pray that there will be some different thoughts, different practices, moments where we pull aside, where we contemplate, where we reflect on your great sacrifice and that we would just simply say, Lord, help us to follow you. You invite us into your death when you say, come and follow me. Some of us as Christ followers today, Lord, need to die to some things, die to our dream, die to our sense of happiness, die to our self-will, and we need to bow our knees to you and say, Lord, you have your way. And it's precious whenever we do that, Lord, because it reminds, it's a reminder that you are the one in charge, not us. So Lord, let these final moments of this service be a time where we reflect where we don't just try to jump and move, but we would sit before you now, we would worship your name, we would ask you what needs to change in our lives, and maybe to break away from the crowd, so to speak, and into the Christ, into you, Lord. May we do that. Let's quietly stand before the Lord this morning. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.